Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Donald Trump is making his first foreign trip as president to the Middle East with his initial stop in Saudi Arabia. President Trump will arrive in a kingdom on the precipice of major changes, including a youth boom, technological revolutions, a possible succession to a younger generation of royal leadership, and an ambitious economic reform program dubbed Vision 2030. Social media, a young prince, is changing the social environment of Saudi Arabia. Today, we'll speak with Simon Henderson, director of the Institute's Gulf and Energy Policy Program, about the political, economic, and social changes facing Saudi Arabia, and what the future holds for the kingdom, for its Arab neighbors, and for Washington's relations with Riyadh. After this. This is Rob Satloff, executive director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. I'm speaking today with Simon Henderson. He is the Baker Fellow and Director of the Gulf and Energy Policy Program at the Washington Institute. He's also the recent co-author of the 2017 transition paper, Rebuilding Alliances and Countering Threats in the Gulf. Simon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. One year ago, Saudi Arabia unveiled its Vision 2030, a plan for radically changing some aspects of the uh, Saudi oil sector, as well as some uh, public policy changes. Can you explain for us exactly what is Vision 2030? Vision 2030 is a vision by definition, in my mind, vision's always slightly murky. And to define it exactly is a role of the Saudi government uh, rather than me. And I'm rather confused by aspects of it. But essentially, it's a big kick to the uh, Saudi economy uh, to transform and modernize itself. And less explicitly, it's a big kick into Saudi society to transform and modernize itself. This is what makes it such an intriguing subject uh, because Saudi Arabia has the reputation for being one of the most conservative countries on the planet. Uh, Conservative in that women don't drive, uh, the role of women in society is Uh, in our terms, um, uh, less visible than in most societies elsewhere in the world. And there's a lot of progress to be made in Saudi Arabia. But the chances of it happening when you are so resistant uh, to change uh, makes the whole exercise um, not only important, of course, but also fascinating. I don't want at such an early stage to say, it's a load of nonsense, it's not going to happen, and we might as well laugh and give up on it now. Because I think the story of the next few years is that the Saudis are going to try and make it happen. And how well they do, how quickly they're able to uh, impose some transformation, uh, the obstacles which crop up, how they get round the obstacles and or avoid them in one way or another, that's going to be a completely fascinating. Where did Vision 2030 come from? Who, who created it? What was the process of 
including or deciding what was going to be included in this vision for the future of Saudi Arabia. What, what can you tell us about how it was created? Well, we don't really know that, but the simple way of describing it, which may well be, frankly, the absolute truth, is that it's uh, the vision of a man called Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's one of the sons of the King of Saudi Arabia, King Salman, and he wants to be king one day and knows that Saudi Arabia needs to change if it's going to remain the country that it has been and to develop. And, and he's the man that Saudi watchers often refer to as MBS. Yes, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, MBS, normally uh, capital M, small b, capital S. And the advantage of calling him MBS is partly uh, for simplicity's sake and also to differentiate him from his elder cousin, who is the crown prince and therefore notionally the next king of Saudi Arabia. He's called Mohammed bin Naif. His father was uh, a man called Crown Prince Naif, who died several years ago. Uh, and Mohammed bin Naif, inevitably, is called MBN. Does the reception and, to date, implementation of Vision 2030 tell us anything about uh, palace politics, uh, particularly with regard to who the next king will be? This is the very core of the work that I try to do. But you can waste a lot of time uh, fantasizing about who might be king. My basic answer for this sort of question is that Saudi Arabia in three to five years' time will still be very much the same Saudi Arabia that it is today. It's, there isn't going to be a revolution in Saudi Arabia. There will be changes in the economy, etc., etc., as things modernize. Uh, particularly in uh, in respect to whatever the price of oil is going to be. But I don't know who the king of Saudi Arabia is going to be. I suspect it won't be King Salman, who's 80, 80, 81 this year. And I am prepared to put money on it that it will be uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the deputy crown prince. How he makes sure that he becomes king rather than... Uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Naif, MBN, I don't know. I don't know when this transition is going to happen, nor the circumstances of which it's going to happen. Uh, not many people in Washington are usually prepared to admit so comprehensively to what they don't know. Uh, I am, because I really don't know. But boy, oh boy, it's important to the world, and well, it's fascinating to my work. That was going to be my next question. So why should Americans care who the next king of Saudi Arabia will be? They shouldn't necessarily care about who the character is going to be, but they should care about Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is uh, important in the world basically for three reasons. One, it is the uh, center of Islam. Mecca and Medina, the two holy places of Islam, are on Saudi territory. And it regards itself, therefore, as the leader of the Islamic world. Uh, indeed, the king of Saudi Arabia also has the title the custodian of the two holy places, that is Mecca and Medina. On top of that, Saudi Arabia regards itself as uh, the leader 
uh, of the Arab world. This is slightly contested perhaps by Egypt, uh, which uh, regards itself as having millennia of history. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the Egyptians will tell you, was founded in 1932, which uh, relatively speaking is, is yesterday. But uh, they nevertheless, uh, the Saudis regard themselves as the leader of the Arab world. Incidentally, of course, uh, their leadership of the Islamic world from a Saudi point of view is contested or at least challenged uh, by Iran, uh, which is frankly one of the major and most significant and I think probably most interesting narratives of the tensions of the Middle East today. And then the third reason why Saudi Arabia is important is that it has uh, the world's uh, largest reserves of easily recoverable oil. If you look it up in the reference books, you will see that Venezuela notionally has larger reserves of oil. But Venezuelan uh, oil is mostly in the form of tar sands, which is uh, environmentally dirty and therefore technically expensive uh, to produce. Saudi oil, by comparison, uh, is relatively easy to produce, cheap to produce, uh, and uh, this has made Saudi Arabia the largest exporter of oil in the world. And because of the money that this has brought to Saudi Arabia, it is a significant economy and is indeed a member of the G20 group of economic countries, of which, of course, the United States is the leader. In absolute terms, Saudi Arabia is a relatively wealthy uh, country. As you said, it's, it's on the G20. Mm -hmm. However, its economy is very much not diversified. Part of the goal or part of the vision of Vision 2030 is a more diversified economy uh, with attracting more investments, uh, being a business hub connecting across continents. Is that realistic and can that be done without significantly liberalizing Saudi Arabia politically? Yes, oil and Saudi Arabia um, have only emerged in the last century, less than a hundred years. Indeed, oil in the Middle East was first found in Iran, and uh, Saudi oil wasn't discovered until really the 1930s, and it didn't become a significant producer of oil until, frankly, the 1950s. Until that time, the main source of revenue for Saudi government was fees paid by pilgrims visiting the holy places of Mecca and Medina. Uh, so oil has been a major transformation in this country. It's got a large population or relatively large population in local terms, regional terms, of um, notionally 27 million uh, people, which includes quite a few expatriates um, of varying descriptions who frankly do most of the work. But this means that despite its oil wealth and despite being a leading oil exporter, uh, the per capita income of Saudi Arabia is not up in the stratosphere as it is for Qatar, uh, in a neighboring country, or the United Arab Emirates, uh, where the capital there, the lead emirate of Abu Dhabi, is uh, almost as wealthy as Qatar is. This means that although we have the image that the Saudis are fabulously rich, and there are fabulously rich Saudis, most Saudis are not rich and uh, live 
relatively humble lives and uh, have problems uh, affording cars and houses and um, in some circumstances paying the grocery bill. This should mean, in terms of Vision 2030, uh, that there's a willingness to go along with economic change because clearly uh, things need to improve. And with the price of oil uh, expected to remain comparatively weak, uh, the way for improvement is to diversify the economy away from oil. This is where it frankly becomes dreamlike and uh, certainly visionary uh, because um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, wants to, to develop a industrial base to produce cars, to produce um, military equipment and um, develop what for us would be a more normal uh, Western type economy as you might find in Europe, North America, Japan, South Korea, whatever. Uh, the trouble is that Saudi Arabia, as they say, has suffered from the curse of oil, which means a variety of things, but in the circumstances of what I want to explain means that they've got away uh, with oil prices rising, uh, government revenues increasing. They've been able to afford to import people to do anything approaching to hard work and the loyal citizenry have been uh, had their loyalty maintained by uh, extravagant provision of public services and subsidies on basic commodities. Uh, what's gone wrong, of course, is the price of oil has fallen, and um, this it's becoming more difficult to keep this show on the road. You've written that there's anecdotal evidence suggesting that Vision 2030 is popular with Saudi youth, with young Saudis, who are tantalized, you write, by the prospect of a more liberal society. I wonder, is that setting up a doomed-to-disappoint scenario where expectations will be raised that cannot be delivered? And if so, could that pose a threat to the stability of the state? Yeah, let's wind that back slightly. You know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Saudi newspapers were either government-controlled or heavily government-influenced. Uh, the only televisions were government-owned stations or, or same for radio. Since then, as in the rest of the world, uh, the internet has emerged and uh, the Saudis have grabbed the internet with both hands. Indeed, Saudi Arabia is regarded to be one of the most social media infiltrated uh, countries on the planet. This has empowered, uh, in a sense, Saudi youth. It's a very young country. Saudi families tend to be huge, but their youth is now empowered. And the former social restrictions, which frankly were rather dismal with no live entertainment, no public cinema, and uh, severe restrictions in social circumstances when you go out to restaurants and things like this, is under stress. Saudi youth, young women, young men, want know what is going on in the rest of the world and don't necessarily want to go uh, the drugs and drinking and dancing aspect of it, but they want greater freedom. 
greater social freedom and they are grabbing it with both hands. This frankly is one of the attractions of the initiative of Mohammed bin Salman, 31 years old, 32 this year, and he's a, already a leader of the country. This is extraordinary because traditionally Saudi leadership has been by old men uh, and indeed within Saudi families it's the elder members of the family who are revered, respected and if they want something to happen it happens and if they don't want something to happen you don't do it within those family circumstances. But social media, a young prince, is changing the social environment of Saudi Arabia and how will that uh, interact within the conservative elements which are not only one's parents but also the clerical leadership who traditionally have been given a uh, important role uh, in the government of Saudi Arabia. They essentially have legitimized the rule of uh, what is known as the House of Saud, with the Saudi royal family, uh, in return for being given um, authority and control over social ministries and religious affairs ministries and things like that. Is, is any social opening possible without creating a conflict between the uh, clerical leadership, the ulama, and the crown? Well, I think we're seeing that. We will, you know, ask me in a year's time and I'll tell you whether there's any evidence of that. There's a, been a little amount of bleating because frankly and curiously perhaps the ulama or some of their um, parts of them, uh, the religious leadership, are as active twitters, twitterers as anybody else in Saudi Arabia. But they've been cautious at criticizing Vision 2030 Partly, I suspect, because they don't want to appear to be insulting the king, uh, which is a big no-no in uh, Saudi Arabia, and probably for opportunistic reasons that they don't see that this is the time to express their concern and unhappiness. And I think they're probably waiting until something goes wrong, or transparently wrong, and they then turn around and then say... Uh, what's the effect? Um, well, we didn't necessarily tell tell you so, but you know there is method in our uh, what we stand for and our resistance to change and conservative views uh, because it tends to be safer that way. And if there's some sort of political disaster or social disaster, uh, that might well be their point of view. So far, though, the uh, Saudi Arabia, like most of the rest of the Arab monarchies has weathered the storms of 2011 and events since the Arab Spring with greater stability, uh, political and social stability, than most of the Arab republics have. We have not really seen a, a monarchy deposed or even seriously threatened. To what extent does this Vision 2030 fit into, or call into question, the narrative of greater stability among the Arab monarchies? I don't think it really does. The Arab monarchies are uh, in the main sort of popular. They might think of themselves as rulers and kings. They also listen to people and they can adjust the direction they're going. And uh, they have this 
majlis system, which is essentially means anybody can turn up to an open house held perhaps once a week of the ruler and bleat if they've got a problem. And uh, the problem might be that the ruler hands over an envelope of cash to sort out some local financial difficulty. But the ruler also hears what's going on. Now, can this sort of system sustain itself into the years of this century? I don't know. But backing up this system is, frankly, a, a very efficient intelligence and security service uh, apparatus. Uh, so if things go wrong, you can get yourself arrested very quickly. And also the view that uh, they've seen now on television what's been happening in Syria on a daily basis. They know what happened in Iraq with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and the chaos then, then emerged in the country as uh, even before the Americans had left. And uh, they've seen what's happening in Libya, where some of these countries, frankly, are no longer functioning countries. Uh, they've seen the uh, cycle of revolution and coup in uh, Egypt. And they, I would like to suggest, probably think, well, if this is progress, we can do without progress. Give us another form of progress and we'll consider it. And I don't blame them. If, uh, if we cast ourselves forward in time uh, to the year 2030, and just suppose that under Deputy Crown Prince and eventually uh, King Mohammed bin Salman, the reforms envisioned today have been carried out. Will we find, will the time traveler find that uh, Saudi Arabia in 2030 will have become just like Saudi Arabia today, but with better nightlife and a car industry? Or will we be looking at something more fundamentally different, a, a, a functioning constitutional monarchy, for example, a Saudi parliament with powers, uh, city councils, uh, elections, the whole shebang, or is, is this really just a set of structural, economic, and to some extent fiscal reforms that will be accompanied by a, a, an inevitable youth culture boom? I, that's an excellent way of describing the possibilities. Um, my first um, comment, though, would be 2030 is only 13 years off, and that's not enough time. Uh, so they won't be achieving what they want to achieve by 2030. Maybe we're talking 2035 or 2040. Uh, many of these changes, especially to do with the education system, the, uh, change it so that um, young people emerge from their education with skills more compatible with a modern society, uh, rather than, frankly, being rather good religious students but incapable of doing anything else. You can only really change an education system within a, takes a generation or so. Mm -hmm. Define a generation where you're talking at least 20 years plus, 20, 25 years plus. So that takes you well belong beyond 2030 in the first place. And I'm sure there will be socio-political changes. There's been a re-emergence of debate over women should drive or not which to us seems completely, utterly nonsensical uh, that they can't drive. But it's a big deal in Saudi Arabia. Will this debate actually lead to what you and I would call progress uh, on this issue? Not sure. But it's interesting that it's uh, happening. 
widening the lens a little bit, looking ahead as well to the future of the Gulf, which is mainly governed by monarchies of one form or another, what should we be looking for or preparing for in terms of uh, the future history of the uh, Persian Gulf region? There are two aspects of this. One is, tell me the price of oil and I'll be able to give you a better answer. Two-thirds or so, 60% plus, of the world's oil reserves are found in the countries of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Iran, and Iraq. And this is the key indicator of how economies are going to develop going forwards. The advance and progress so far is a reflection of the good price that they've managed to achieve for their oil exports over the years. The trouble is the price, which a couple of years ago was over $100 a barrel, is now, uh, as of this week, below $50 a barrel. Uh, And so their income has been halved. And the trend line, at least in economic terms, um, i.e., let's forget any sort of political catastrophe which may or may not take place. The trend line is that the price of oil will remain low and indeed perhaps it go even lower. Uh, So that will be the major factor to me on how this region goes forward. The other big indicator for the future of the Persian Gulf is the persistent tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran which I would date back, uh, you could date it back millennia. Let's forget that bit for the moment. I would date back to the 1979 Iranian Revolution uh, when the uh, Shah of Iran was overthrown and replaced by an Islamic revolutionary regime in uh, Tehran. Uh, Since then, now, and going forward, I see the essential political narrative being the tension between the two big regional rivals, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. There are extra dimensions to this in that you could point out that the Saudis are Arab, the uh, Iranians are essentially uh, Persian. Uh, Religiously, the Saudis are mainly Sunni Arab, uh, Sunnis, and the um, Iranians are mainly Shiites. But uh, I think the, the basic theme of this is that they're two big countries and they're rivals and uh, they don't get on. And frankly, I can't see them getting on. Saudi Arabia is a status quo power. It likes things perhaps complacently, pretty well uh, as they are now. Iran is an anti-status quo power. It doesn't like the way the Middle East looks at the moment and wants to change the Middle East. That change is more than writing op-eds in newspapers. They are, from an Arab point of view, undermining regimes. They're making trouble. Uh, They're using militancy. They are developing missiles. Um, They have a potential nuclear capability which may or may not have disappeared with the nuclear accord of a couple of years ago. And furthermore, Iran does not regard 
the United States as having a legitimate role in the region. This scares the hell out of the, uh, the Saudis and the other Gulf states who look to uh, the United States as being an essentially a security guarantor for them. And they're worried uh, that uh, the United States would leave. Uh, from their point of view, uh, and the Trump administration is a, a welcome breath of fresh air. President Trump regards the Iranians as troublemakers. President Obama uh, regarded them as having a legitimate role in the Middle East um, and was noted uh, for saying on a couple of different interviews, one was that uh, what a pity that Sunni, Sunnis and Shiites just can't get on. And the other line he was famous for, or infamous for, uh, was... Um, that isn't it a pity that Iran and the Saudis uh, can't just share the region? Well, the Saudis and the Iranians don't want to share the region, and this is going to be a source of tension as we go forwards. Every president since Ronald Reagan has made uh, his first foreign trip to either Canada or Mexico. President Trump is making his first foreign trip, and he's headed for Saudi Arabia. If you had a few seconds with uh, the president before his visit, what would you want him to uh, know? What would you say to the president if you had some time in an elevator before he uh, flies to Riyadh? Uh, you've got a great opportunity here uh, to change things in the Middle East. It's possibly a one-off opportunity, and you won't be able to go back to it, and you certainly won't have the same influence if you do go back to it. But here's a possibility of altering and improving the relationship with Saudi Arabia, but don't sell yourself cheap on this one. Try and see what else you can get out of it. The most obvious uh, way, have I still got some floors left in this elevator? We're going up. Good. The, the most obvious way is uh, for the Saudis, along with uh, the other Gulf states, particularly the United Arab Emirates, to declare openly that they are working with Israel or have found reasons to cooperate with Israel, frankly, to meet the Iranian threat. You've done that on the quiet so far. Uh, why don't you go public about it? And although the Palestinian issue still has to be sorted out, don't make that the hurdle that everybody has to jump over in order before any further change can happen in the Middle East. So take what's now under the table and put it on top of the table? A good way of putting it. And I suspect frankly, that that's what President Trump would like to do. Am I optimistic that he can do it? No, but uh, if anybody can do it, it's possibly him. We've been speaking today with Simon Henderson. He is the Baker Fellow and the Director of the Gulf and Energy Policy Program at the Washington Institute. He's written widely on Saudi politics as well as the monarchies and uh, succession issues uh, in Saudi Arabia and its neighboring states. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.